Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Flyway Connections. We are without Chris today, so it's just me and Joe. Joe, would you like to introduce our guest? Hey, today, glad to, uh, to introduce Bronson from California, a local California boy like myself, and a big time uh, waterfowler. Hey, Bronson, how you doing today? Good, doing real good, doing real good. Well, so, you want to start it off? How we we'll, start? We'll off? start off with the big question. So this 2021-2022A, how was your season this year in hunting in California, that Pacific Flyway? Um, well, it was it started off good. Our first couple of hunts, I took some juniors out for our early opener. And I don't know if a lot of the viewers or listeners know, but like our our season is probably the longest season in the United States. Um, that was in September, uh, the youth hunt for way up north, and that um is not just like teal or wood ducks or what some people may consider like a small duck season that's full blown ducks geese everything for the youth um and then two weeks after that that's when uh that that zone opens so we did real good um first day we took out some juniors uh shot two limited ducks and some bonus canadas and some specs and then some some north winds blew through that night, pushed a lot of our birds out, shot a few pintail the next day. And then fast forward a couple weeks later, we went back up there with a few buddies and we shot a few ducks. And then um, I went big game hunting out of state on our regular opener, but I came back and we did real good. If, if we had water and our fields were harvested, um, I mainly hunt private. I'm lucky. I have a lot of access. Um, we began to do very, very well, especially on the specs early in the season. Um, we did actually fairly well on local ducks pretty early, shot a bunch of widgeon and mallards and, um, just kind of the birds that hung around first, but we really, really brought the specs until about the middle of December, um, as a guide and just hunting in general, I, I targeted specs by 90% of the time. Um, mid-November through December, that's when the snows started to really come in. And before people were putting out really big spreads, uh, I was actually killing them pretty consistent over a smaller spec spread with a few snows mixed in. Um, then right around December, everything got real tough. We're in an ongoing, uh, I wouldn't call it a drought because that's just how California is now, but um, there's been so little roost water. Um, the only real roosting areas that were consistent were large refuges like Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge and Delavan and, uh, and Calusa. So we really had to rely on um, good weather to get them. Um, and even in good weather, it just wasn't that great all the time. From about December 21st, which was the end of our closure season, which if you guys don't know, you can't shoot specs in a, a rectangular zone um, in California in the Valley after that. But we moved, at, we went north of that closure zone. And for about a, three weeks to a month, it was really, really tough. And then January rolled around and we, uh, the birds started to act right again. A lot of our birds left and went down to the Delta. Um, but we hunted every day. Like, uh, we usually do. Um, we tried to, if I was guiding, we usually like offer the 
the clients to cancel or whatever, just because it wasn't good. But we ran into a few days where we, we put up some pretty decent numbers, some tens and twelves and stuff like that. And it was still real tough and not, not a lot of other outfitters around were doing that great. And then fast forward all the way to our late season, uh, kind of everything reversed. Um, and all the birds started to head back North. Uh, we get to hunt, I think it's February. Um, we get to hunt in February, which is a reverse migration hunt, basically. Um, and you can even hunt perch all the way at the top of the state, back in the northeast zone. You can um, hunt in February or just geese? Uh, just specs. So that far duck season. Oh, that's season, all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> our our duck season is usually the last weekend of January, um, or in our youth waterfowl hunt for that balance of state zone that I usually hunt is that following weekend. And then it usually goes the veteran hunt after that, which they put into effect a few years ago. And I've been taking veterans out and we actually did pretty good with our vets this year. We shot a few ducks. It was a little slow. Um, it was really warm on our veteran hunt. And then <clears throat> like I was saying, our late goose, everything kind of reversed and, uh, and all the birds loaded back up. They all started heading north, uh, back to the valley from the Delta and the grasslands. And they began to make their way back to the refuges and back to the uh, valley. And I heard was hearing scouting reports that they were lower in the valley around Sutter. Um, and then by the time our season rolled around, they were in our fields and our, we were, I was set up on a grind the first day. Um, and we killed, uh, let's see, we killed, 20 we killed 20 and 21 i think or 20 and 20 two back-to-back days and then it kind of fizzled out from there but where i guide i mainly hunt small realistic full body spreads with really covered blinds with no more than uh five other guns other guides so there's it's six man pits um so we 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 did fairly well early in the season like i said we had that lull and then it turned out to be at the end. So that, uh, that February spec season, does it overlap with conservation snow? Uh, so we, uh, so that is our, that is like our, like, hence our conservation snow hunt. Um, for multiple political reasons, we don't have one in California just because, um, they just haven't allowed it yet. So we still have to hunt on that season. We still have to follow our 20 white bird limits, 10 dark uh, spec limits, um, no Canada's. Um, and then also um, you have to have plugs in, no electronic calls. Um, obviously all the same rules as the regular season, like like wanton waste laws and all that. So when y'all are hunting that, that season, um, so like for me, what I've found big when I, where I hunt in Arkansas is like my calling has to match my spread, right? Where like, you know, if you're running a big spec spread and only one guy's on the call on birds that have, you know, been around during the season, they're like, ah, that doesn't sound right. Do y'all kind of see that with snows? Like when you're hunting a big snow spread, you just have to have a ton of guys ripping on a call. Yes and no. I don't know if you've heard of yeah, yeah calls. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've guided for them a few times and helped. They're just field handed for them, and then 
uh, GOA guide service. I've helped them too. The, the guide service I work for um, most of the time is called Fish Dog Outdoors, and we specialize in spec hunts. Um, obviously, if the snows are in, we'll, we'll shoot our snows, and we'll try to shoot a few snows too. But I've hunted with those yeah, yeah guys, and that that's where the big spread they run. Uh, I, I want to say under dozen full bodies, a mix of full bodies, big owls, silhouettes, and skyfly socks. Um, and that is like when we hunt that, it's just a wall of sound we put out. Um, what I prefer to hunt though, and same with DOA, they run a bigger spread and, and a lot of that aggressive calling for the snows. Um, when I'm hunting over what I hunt, usually I usually hunt over anywhere from four to 10 dozen full body specs. Um, and anywhere from two or dozen snows in whatever mixture it is. So it was usually around four to six dozen specs with two to four dozen snows or in there, usually two dozen snows. Um, and really what worked really, really well when a lot of people were struggling with the snows was just really quiet, really quiet groundwork. Um, just that, like that low, low growl on the bottom. Uh, very few barks. And I mean, I had, I had really good snow goose hunts with, with those results with, with using those techniques and not calling too, too loud because I mean, snows are loud on the ground, but if you really watch like two dozen of them or a dozen of them mixed in a spec spread, all you really hear is that buzz or that, that ground talk. And then you'll hear a few just go up you know here and there but it's not that that wall of sound like you hear with all the big grinds so um yeah talking about you know all that so you when you're hunting all that are you hunting over dry fields or are you hunting over the flooded rice fields so we were lucky while i was hunting big game out of state we experienced some really big rainstorms and like saved our early season i'm guessing i ended up having in the field we guided in about two i would say two to three inches max of tow water in our guide field because we hunted the bottom cell of our property yeah um that was i mean lights out we we held birds in our spread we we hunt over a permanent spread mostly um, I mean, we would have grinds in our decoys almost every day we'd go out there and we'd have to kick them out. Um, birds would be walking around in the decoys when we're, when we're setting up and everything. So, um, we hunt mainly dry fields, but in that case we had a little bit of tow water, but it's mainly dry field setups that we were hunting out of a kind of a fine style that we made, um, out of just, um, some stuff you can get at the hardware store. Yeah. And then. And then the regular hunts, we, we hunt out of pits with um, special covers on top of them. Yeah. Do you ever hunt any of those silo pits? Uh, like the, the really big party pits? No, like those little round ones are more like individual type. Oh, yeah. So, like, that's more like a grasslands thing. And yeah. Some of the rest have them. Um, I don't think I've personally ever hunted out of one. Um, yeah. That's, it's not as common just because more like the rectangular pit styles are are more common because they fit the outline of the checks a little bit better i know some people hunt out of them but i just none of the yeah. places where I so for the viewers uh bronson probably 
lives about 20 minutes maybe from where I grew up at in Fairfield. He lives in uh, what, Petaluma. Yeah, I live in Pengrove, so it's a little bit farther. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's yeah. Like probably 30 minutes or like 45 with traffic. Yeah, depending on traffic, yeah. So I'm 36, he's 19, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so like our, when we talk about hunting a little bit, I might be aging myself a little talking about some of the, some of the old ways we hunted back home uh, many years ago. You know, my hunting back home was the late nineties, early two thousands. And you know, then I left, left state. And I, I'd, I'd come home, always come home once a, once a year to do a big hunt back home. But, you know, we had a lot, you know, Lambertville, uh, Calusa and the, a lot of the refuges and, you know, I was lucky enough to have, uh, be part of some good hunt clubs up there. Some that still exist and some that, that are relics no longer exist. Uh, I think we were talking about um, Richmond Hunt Club. You said you you, you had that a few times. Yeah, I don't. I think I have, um, I, or you know, I might not have. I know my buddies have had pits there. I've hunted, so I've hunted. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if I have actually hunted on the, the Richmond Hunt Club properties. I don't know if I have. I can't remember exactly, yeah. but I know. I've had friends that have had pits on the Richmond hunt club properties, um, which there's a lot more properties starting to go towards waterfowl chasers, which is owned by another guy. Um, and then wilderness unlimited is really starting to lose their properties based on just bad management of paying farmers and stuff like that. Yeah. So I know a lot, a lot of guide services and a lot of like, um, other companies are starting to pick up uh, their leases just because they've kind of been starting to be a little sloppy with some of their financial stuff and yeah. responsibilities that they should be taking care of. Yeah. So California uh, duck clubs are kind of like, that's interesting. You know, you don't really like hear about it much around other areas. Like in Arkansas, you know, it's more of there's clubs, but it's mostly like leases. You're like kind of leasing your own kind of deal. I can like the idea of that that duck club. Yeah, and, I don't know how much of in Bronx you can probably talk to more. I mean, I more often than nowadays, but like back in the days, like in the Lambertville, Maxwell, um, uh, Dunnigan, and um, the Calouse area, they're like little communities of like little like not. I wouldn't want to call them lodges. I mean, they were not primitive shacks, but they were like, you know, they're what you would think your great grandfather's grandfather's um, duck shack or a little, I guess you could call it a lodge would be. Um, oh yeah. 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 So, so I, my buddy, I think Gus, you're going to have him on here pretty soon. Yeah. We'll have Gus. Yeah. Gus is a good dude. Yeah. So Gus, I've hunted Gus's club and I've hunted clubs next to his and that's in one of those little communities that you're talking about called Lambertville. Yeah. Um, and, and they're really, I mean, California is really unique like that. I have not waterfowl hunted in a lot of other states. Um, I have traveled to a lot of different states and you, you hear, like you said, it's a few duck clubs here and there, and they're usually really lucrative, but California is pretty special that, I mean, if you're not hunting on a duck club, it's very rare that you, and no one really calls them leases. They just call them blinds in California. Yeah. So, so when I first heard the term leases, like four or five years ago, I was it's really confused. Probably from the Louisiana area. Yeah. So that yeah, was with Bill and all them. 
Um, but yeah, so California, I mean, every, everything's a duck club basically other than the refuges and there's like Richmond hunt club. I don't think they have clubhouses. They, they more just the wines, but yeah, they had, um, like, they had hubs. Like when I was yeah. a kid, I remember they had the main hub and they had like these little satellite areas when, where people would mainly bring their RVs and their trailers and campers. Yeah. So, so that's, I, that's what a, a basic duck club is. A duck club is basically an equipment pad in the middle of rice country that everybody keeps their trailers on. And that's, that's the first experience of a duck club that I um, have, that I have of when I was first starting and not even hunting yet, just going with my uncle tagging along. Um, but what it turns into then there's the equipment pad with a few RVs and motorhomes with a little shack, maybe with a plucking shack and maybe a little uh, place to hang out for all the members. Um, but then it can go to a whole nother and you can be in a, in a lodge 20 feet off the ground. So it can't get flooded with boats and boat docks that you pull your boat in right to the lodge and everybody stays there and um, with uh, beers on tap. And I mean, you, you name it, it gets as fancy as you want. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it can, I mean, duck hunting in California is definitely not a cheap sport like it is anywhere, but uh, some of these, these ritzy, really, really, really nice duck clubs um, just take it a whole nother step. And I mean, I, I've seen things such as um, like they have vortexes in their, in their snow goose spread, like in the setup in the natural marsh and it's set up on a control panel and you can just click or even duck spreads. You flip a switch and the whole spread comes to life. I've heard and seen of that. I've heard. Yeah. Well, what um, was it? In re- in, until recently, you weren't allowed to use motorized decoys up there, right? No, you can't. You've been able That's to Washington use Washington State, right? Is it Washington? Yeah, it's Washington. Yeah, State. Washington. Washington, yeah, no, you can't. Um, but so I've also, I mean, some of these duck clubs are so nice. There's underground rock paths you walk out to the blinds on so you don't step well, in. Yeah, the <laughs> gravel. Yeah, so. Yeah. We had my dad on the episode, and he uh, uh, about this time last year we had on the Father's Day episode, and he was talking about back in the day he would go gravel the blinds, so then he would be able to hunt the um, he'd get permission to hunt you know hunt a few times in each all these clubs for free as long as he you know, he put all the gravel out for everybody. Yeah, so that that's kind of a thing that no one else. I mean, I've, that's kind of a unique thing to California. Never heard of uh, that before. You. Go through a tunnel to get into the into the blind type of deal, or like no, the gravel path they they put down. Oh, they just like spread gravel out to like drive out to. No, to walk out yeah. to. To walk so out. I, to. Also, like what you were saying, what you were kind of talking, like trying to put a picture. It's just like a probably a three foot wide path. You with markers, you can follow out to the blind. Um, but that particular blind I'm talking about was actually a Bowden blind with a boathouse in the blind, um, in this giant tule patch. So you just slide the boat in under there, throw your decoys out. And I mean, it's, uh, it's something else. That's for sure. I, I've, I've been really lucky to hunt a lot of lucrative clubs, um, from the time I've been really young. Um, but I mean, it just goes on and on. It, I mean, there's all kinds of different things. So what what's what out of state uh, places have you hunted for waterfowl? My favorite place? 
No, uh, what what other what other states have have you hunted? Okay, so I have. I'm kind of blanking right now. I I think I've only hunted Arkansas. Um, I'm trying to think if I've I've been anywhere else. Well, um, I you ever come Arkansas. down here, to Louisiana? I've never hunted Louisiana. I've never hunted Texas. I've never hunted any of that. I plan to this year, though. I have a trip planned. A few of my buddies are moving up to Boise for school, so I'm going to yeah. go on a duck hunting trip up there, as well as I plan on trying to get a Nevada swan permit and kind of adventure around Nevada a little bit this year, yeah. um, especially with our water situation and probably i'm kind of banking on i hope we can guide as much as we did last year um but i just don't really see that happening with our water situation there's not as many fields planted um nearly all of our fields that i guided in last year aren't being planted so it's kind of a kind of a thing that i'm kind of trying to figure out what i'm going to do for the year um i'll still guide i'll still help rob with DOA guide service and Stefan and Brian with kale outdoors, which is the yeah, yeah calls guys. Yeah. Um, and of course I'll, I'll prioritize Ben at a uh, fish dog as much as I can, but there's just kind of a lot of uncertainty with what our guiding season will look like. So, I mean, I think it'll also be a good thing. It'll kind of give me the, the opportunity to venture out and check out Idaho and check out Nevada a little bit. Yeah. You need to get uh in none what was it? Um Nevada. Are is are those tundra swans you could you're, you're trying to hunt out there? Yeah, so they're they are tundra swans. Yeah. Um you need to give yeah, stuff so, a stuff stuff a call because they they're sitting on tundra swan heaven out there in North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. And, he, and I've I've gotten that that invite from him too. Um, which I'd love to make that a trip eventually. The thing is kind of with like a swan hunt though, for me, it's obviously one bird. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of a trip for one bird and not trying to talk down on North Carolina, but their duck hunting is not as exciting. I yes. <laughs> what, yeah. what I've heard about. Um, it's different. Um, cause I hunted, cause I lived out there in North Carolina and that's how I met stump and all those guys. And um, it's different. Um, you really learn to appreciate the wood duck, and you really learn to appreciate your ringnecks. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I mean, I I've I worked at a summer camp in South Carolina called Camp Woody, which is like a hunter education kind of yeah. camp. Um, and I had so many kids like eat, like tell me, like you don't got ducks in California. You know, and <laughs> I kind of didn't want to be rude, but I kind of just would tell them like, oh, we got plenty of ducks and we got plenty of geese in California. Yeah. It's nothing. It's nothing like here. And I had to have like a couple of counselors like kind of back me up because they like they jump up like those southern kids would jump on me, you know, yeah. like, you know, like, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And then I had, I would have have older people be like no you just you you'll one day want to go out there you know yeah it's so weird like so i've hunted you know me and stuff have hunted up in arkansas i've hunted in arkansas with sharp quite a bit and you know hunt down here and i mean i love louisiana i really like um i mean i've hunted timber i've hunted marsh i really like the rice fields and i think it's just because that's where i grew up in is in the rice fields up north 
Um, yeah. But like when people, you know, they start talking, I'm like, you know, we all, you know, everyone loves their state they're in and they start getting in kind of these little, um, you know, chest pumping um, matches. And like, I, what I tell people is like, numbers don't lie. You look at, you know, a 10 spec limit compared to a two, a seven Maller limit compared to a four. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, numbers don't lie. Um, yeah. So, for example, I mean, that right there, I think our our harvest compared to Arkansas, Arkansas has the, the highest duck harvest out of any state, as everybody knows. That's the duck capital of the world, no doubt. But if you look at the numbers, other than the numbers of birds harvested, and you look at the n- amount of hunters, hunters yeah. the amount of hunters in California, if we had more hunters in California um, or matched the ratio of what Arkansas had, we'd be, I mean, just for looking at numbers, we would probably be ahead of Arkansas. In the thousands. Um, yeah. And, and. <laughs> I mean, California has gone downward in a downward spiral the last few years, but that goes to say, I mean, every state can have a bad cycle of seasons. Um, and then if we get water again, we'll be back on yeah. track. Um, I mean, I, but, I mean, we're seeing it here in Louisiana. Um, like, you know, I tell everyone, Louisiana, you know, when I, when I first moved to Louisiana, I was like, I mean, I was super pumped. Um, a lot of guys don't like moving here. And, uh, you know, being in the military, I was like, yeah, I'm moving down there. Finally got there, you know, to waterfowl hunt. And I'll, it, I wasn't disappointed. I mean, I love to stay. I'm going to stay here, uh, obviously. But Louisiana is a, I call it, it's, everyone talks about the good old days. There's still ducks here, plenty of them. There's, and and the, there's geese by here by the thousands. But Louisiana is more of a diver state, I, I think. I mean, I've killed a lot more diver ducks than I have here. I mean, canvasbacks, bluebills, uh, ringnecks, uh, redheads, and we. You know, I still kill my occasional mallard. The blue, the blue wing teal hunting, Bronson. If you ever come out here, it's it's come out here early for September uh, blue wing season. It is that. It's something else. It's comparable to dove season back home. That that's. That's what I've heard from everybody. I mean, I've heard that from multiple people who are hardcore duck hunters and hardcore spec hunters. And they say that like 95% of the time talking to people from the South, that's their favorite season. Yeah. it's. Um, and I would, I would like to eventually for sure. That's one of those things that I, if I'm around in the area, sign me up. I'd, I'd love to. Um, I mean, we have nothing really like that, but like I said, our, our youth hunt and our early season starts first couple days of October for our regular season and the juniors are hunting in September. So yeah. I can't really explain because we kind of get our little early season in there. Um, and we have early season Canada hunts, which I mean, I know you guys don't have like us, um, which are a ton of fun. If you get into them, it's a blast. Yeah. Um, but it's just, what's weird is, you know, when I was growing up, Canada, we didn't we didn't kill Canada geese in California, and if you killed a Canada geese, that was kind of a big deal. That was going on your wall. Yeah, so like, I mean, your area that you're talking about, like, like Dunnigan, Calusa, all that. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a, a Canada get shot up there. Out of our guide, a couple got shot up, came off the refuge, um, and one of them was banded, or two of them were banded. I think only one. <laughs> but I. 
think, I mean, we, we see cacklers and illusions, the, the little guys, and I've been guiding before and seen a couple big flocks of migrating camps. But other than that, I mean, I'm talking about my local area where I hunt, uh, like coast, more coastal dairy field area, Sonoma, um, Sonoma, Marin counties. We, we get a lot of resident Canada's. Um, and I'm lucky to have a few just areas that I have permission on some loaf ponds and some, some big dairy fields that get flooded up with some water that really looks more like Washington. Like if anybody ever sees those, those dive bomb videos of them hunting in like the, uh, like that, that, that green in that the middle of the grass where they're slaying widgeons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, I have a lot of that stuff by my house and, and I, I'm lucky in that area too talking about we shoot a lot of steel right around our house um we shoot um let's see i mean nothing nothing really uncommon other than a cinnamon teal canada's um mallards widgeon more coastal ducks uh, a few diver ducks here and there but more of the bay um but that doesn't go to say i i really really have enjoyed the last couple seasons my buddy shared with me a little spot and we go out there and we'll shoot our canvas backs and that's an absolute blast, especially when the, the regular ducks start to get a little bit stale. We'll go out and decoy some canvas backs. And that's, that's become one of my favorite hunts the last few years, just because um, one canvas backs are surprisingly really good eating. And two, um, I mean, they're just pretty, they're, they're definitely one of my favorite ducks. Uh, yeah. There's nothing like watching that and like slowly come into your decoys right over top of the water. I shot my first one this year out in Arkansas in a rice field. Really? Yeah, I, I killed I killed a redhead out there. My my first uh, Drake redhead. Or no no no, I killed a Drake a uh, a young one in Texas last year. Um, but like I shot like a true like mounted one. Yeah, on on the rice fields, a redhead and a uh, canvas back. Okay. Yeah. So that, that actually reminds me, I have shot Canada geese up in the Calusa area. We've shot a few Aleutians. Um, and I, with my buddy, we shot a big Canada over in the Butte sink. Um, but what reminded me was on that hunt where we shot those Aleutians and cacklers, uh, a flock of ducks was coming in really gnarly North wind storm, just brutal rain, wind, just gray skies. And, flock of ducks was coming at us and we thought I, we didn't know what they were and someone's like we we're trying to figure out what they were looking down the end of the blind and someone said their canvas back shoot them and luckily i shot one they just they luckily i got lucky because they're coming in so fast um but that was a canvas back we shot in the rice too and um there's been there's quite a few canvas backs shot in the rice uh every year um it seems like more and more every year yeah, the guys I've talked to around the area, it's like, yeah, we get them, you know, they get lost every once in a while, too, and <laughs> follow other ducks. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to talk about, though, I want to talk about schoolings. Um, so, kind of like, what areas are y'all seeing them, and what's kind of like, what's the big, the big difference? I know, like, it's the size, not having, they kind of look like a chicken, almost. Um, and what, what are you talking about? A tule goose. Oh, tule goose. Yeah. Yeah. So a tule goose, um, I'm very lucky to have 
guided this last year in the management zone, um, which is the, the boundaries that are south down to around Calusa, Dunnigan area, west to Interstate 5, north to uh, Highway 162 uh, by in, that runs through Willows, and then east to the Sacramento River, and there's some other little boundary areas in there. Is that like, um, like that square you're talking about? Why you can't hunt it right there because of the police? That's the rectangular zone that I was referring to. And um, a tula goose, what a tula goose is, is a subspecies of a greater white fronted goose or a speck. Um, a tula goose is about 50% bigger than a regular speck. Their characteristics are they have a lot bigger beak on them that i mean it's very noticeable very long long and slender uh, their heads are dark chocolate um they're just bigger in size their feet are bigger um and usually their their patterns on their breasts are very very um little barring um that's very uh, very very um significant of a tula goose as well as um they're just bigger in general um tule geese they they act like a speck mainly but they also have some other weird things they do they they go down to the sassoon marsh and hang out in the salt marsh for parts of the year um and then they get back to this closure zone kind of area they really like smaller um tule pothole areas on the refuges and they usually hang out in smaller groups um and i think we shot we shot nine this year. Um, not confirmed by the strength, but definitely. I mean, we confirmed a few. Definitely, you can just tell by the size. And yes, there's some bigger, greater uh, Pacific white fronts than others, and there's some really small ones too. But you can just tell with with. I've gotten pretty used to it, especially guiding. I, I have some pictures of juvie tulies and adult tulies taken in the same day next to juvie spec and a regular spec. And I mean, there's just no comparison. I mean, their beaks are longer. Um, you could just looking at them, not in, not in the air. It's really hard for the depth perception in the air. Um, I had one client this year. That kind of, uh, I called some men around and around in a circle and we we're spinning a big group and I called the shot and uh, the client said, I, 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 I saw the biggest one and I shot it and I was like, okay, let's see what it is. Comes back. Sure enough. It's a big, big, uh, juvie Thule. Um, Thule goose is something special we have. I think there's only 300,000 of them. And these, these numbers and what the information I said, all, um, give or take, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. I'm no biologist by any means, but I did do a school project on them. So I know a little bit about them. And um, so that season um, closes, it opens with our regular duck inspect season in that. And then that closes December 21st and you cannot shoot specs in that zone. And during the season in that zone, you can only shoot three, three specs total compared to our 10 spec limit out of the, the closure. Um, and when you talk to biology, they, they stay in that, that special management zone um, 
primarily as well as they go to the Sassoon Martian. That's about the two places they go um, while they winter in California. That's crazy that they all just kind of congregate to that area. And I mean, it works out well that you can regulate it that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of research done on them in the last few years and they have some uh, GPS tracking collars on them and stuff. And I mean, I would, I would say just my estimate from what I saw, it's like 90 to 95% of them stay in the closure. Um, sure few of them get up and go feed out of the closure and come back or they will go to uh they'll go out and fly across the valley if they're running out of food or if they got ran off somewhere but um it's it's pretty consistent the way they act all right well uh Let's uh let's one eighty it and let's talk a little bit about some fishing. Um, yes, all that you're into doing some fly. I know I want to talk to you about fly fishing. Joe wants to talk to you about kind of the other areas that he kind of got into uh, when he lived back there. So uh, Joe, why don't you start it off? So yeah, looking at your page, and I know you're 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 um, a big bass fisherman, and look, you dabbled in the striper and salmon a little bit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So when, you know, the springtime, like probably, probably now, I know I'm talking to my brother and my dad today. And I mean, they're up at Berryessa. They do a, a, usually a week long camping trip about this time of year, but they sit in Berryessa. Um, but what areas, I mean, do you fish and do you travel? I mean, if you had to pick a, a saltwater or freshwater, where do you find yourself doing uh, oh, that's, especially that's in between tough. seasons. You know, that's tough. I, I really, I have not saltwater fished a lot. I'll tell you that I've only been salmon fishing twice and I've messed around and tried to catch rock fish and stuff, but never been too successful. I I've grown up around mainly freshwater fisheries though. Um, but I really like to catch bass. I love catching big stripers on swim baits. That's one of my things that my buddy Colby, still well and daniel all kind of showed me um ever since a few years ago and we've done it usually after our our calling contest in calusa um after we get done competing for the day well oh, so you're fishing on the river you're fishing those big striper on the rivers then river yeah that's on the river so fishing with them um but other than that i mean I mean, I I like doing the swim bait thing for stripers. I've caught them in the Sassoon Marsh on swim baits too. Yeah, um, I like catching bass on swim baits. I, I used to be really into it. I'm not as into it anymore. Um, but my biggest passion lately has been fly fishing for big trout for sure. Um, which is just a blast. If you guys haven't done it, it's so much fun. That's, that's my favorite, man. I'm a big fly fisherman. It's kind of how I got, I caught my first fish on a fly rod when I was like five. My dad's got a hide. We got a hide 14, 14, five, uh, drift boat. I take that. I do. Uh, I'm actually, I work up in North Carolina in the summers. I'm in the Morganton area and I got a good little bit of rivers around. We can take the drift boat in. We go out there and we got some rivers. You can catch trout uh striper and uh there's some musky in there too yeah oh yeah so so me 
I I love I've caught a passion to just trout fishing in general, conventional and fly fishing, but especially fly fishing. Um, I'm a I really enjoy traveling to Nevada to go to Pyramid Lake and chase big trophy cutthroats. Um, I mean, these fish are averaging a small one's three pounds. Jeez. Um, Jeez. Every, are you throwing, you throwing big streamers like fishing? Are you throwing sinking line or just can you get down or like catch them on the shelf to the lake? Usually, so it's a shelf lake up at Pyramid Lake and it, you just fish the shelf. Um, you pretty much just chase the fish around. If you cannot catch them, go to another cove and you walk out and you walk out as far as you can with your waders, set a ladder down and, and, uh, just start fishing. Um, it's really a unique fishery. It's kind of bizarre. It looks like you're on the surface of the moon. The rocks are different. There's no, there's hardly any trees around. There's snow on the mountains. Um, I mean, the water has salt in it, which is, or alkali, which is really odd. Um, as well as the rocks are super sharp in some places. And then uh, there's like coral in other places. So it's a really unique fishery. And I mean, the fish in there are unbelievable. Those cutthroats are so pretty. They fight very, very well. Um, And it's just, it's something if you're into fly fishing, you have to experience. It's, It's a really cool fishery. You said Pyramid Lake? Yeah, Pyramid Lake. Right out of Reno, Nevada. Um, it's, I mean, it's a world-renowned trout fishery um, for sure. I mean, the the the, the lake record is a forty-two pound Mahon cutthroat trout. Um, I'm still chasing the double-digit size. That's what keeps me coming back. Um, but like you were saying, you're asking about tackle and and what flies I'm fishing. Usually, I'm fishing. Um, I really would prefer to be fishing streamers this year. The streamer bite just hasn't been on for me and I've had to resort to catch my fish on, uh, coronamids. Um, really what's odd, the biggest fish are usually caught in that lake on the smallest coronamids, um, which is, doesn't really make sense if you think about it, but that's what those fish eat. Um, but I've been into in years past streamer bites that are just off the hook. Um, especially when they're, either starting to go into that spawning phase or coming out of it, they just get super fired up and they just hammer those streamers. What kind of, what weight rod are you using up there? So I fish two different rods. I fish a stage eight weight with, um, with about, I think it's uh, a 10 or 15 foot sinking tip on it. Um, order to fish my streamers and that's my casting rod for just streamer fishing and stripping it back um and then i've really came to like fishing a spay rod this last year um i've been fishing uh it's a cabela's it's either a nine or a ten weight spay rod um which those fish are definitely you're not being overdone by using that big of a rod some of the little ones yes but um, you're dealing with big winds usually on that lake and big chop. Um, so being able to pick up a lot of line with that 11 foot rod, especially with that little bit extra power really comes in handy. Um, so what I've been fishing, I've been fishing all my indicator fishing off of that spay rod. And it, there's a lot of rocks usually behind you when you're fishing in those areas that you can fish the spay rods. 
and that's kind of where the coronamids come off the bottom and the fish really are active when they bite. So I've really come to like just being able to lay my line back next to me and just flick my wrists out and just throw. I don't know. I'm no pro at spay fishing, but I mean, you're throwing twice as much line out as you could if you were just casting. It's, it's really, really, really easy on your body too, especially, uh, if you've been fishing all day and stripping just wears you out and that lake, the biggest tip I can give anybody is just fish hard on that lake. The fish are going to come through and you just got to pretty much just be in the water and just wait out and they will bite when they go by you. Um, so that spay rod allows you to spend a lot more time in the water. Was it hard learning how to like cast the spay from just doing the regular rod? You know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of youtube for anybody that wants to learn anything about the outdoors a hundred a hundred percent like i pretty much learned everything <laughs> on youtube <laughs> <outdoors>. yeah <laughs> so my, my parents they're not hunters they're not they're i mean they're fishermen they fish a little bit um but they're not avid fly fishermen or anything they don't even know how to cast a fly rod um so i pretty much had to learn everything myself through YouTube or just asking people. I was, I mean, all my buddies, I'm still the same way I am today. If we're at Pyramid Lake, I mean, I walk up and down the bank and I don't want to bother people, but I mean, if we're not catching them and other people are, I just chat with them and say, Hey, what do you, what patterns you fishing? How, I mean, how's it been for you? You know? And that's one thing I really like about Pyramid is the, they're the nicest fishermen you'll run into. Other places, people are a little stingy spots. Pyramid is just a big party in my, everybody's there to have fun. Everybody's, you can five feet from another guy. And as long as you're not tangling on your back cast with another guy, there's no problems with anybody. Everybody's very welcoming. Um, so, I mean, I've learned a hundred percent just by just being a sponge and soaking up knowledge, um, reading articles and really watching YouTube. So casting a spare rod, I, I just watched a few videos and, Really, I just watched some of the, the native guides out there and just kind of watched them. Um, just finally just kind of figured it out. It's really simple. Um, if you know how to roll cast just a little bit on a, like a regular eight weight or five weight or whatever, just over exaggerating it and just making sure you have enough line out. Just really the biggest thing is just letting that big rock pull the work. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much everything with fly fishing. You can learn. You can sit there and wear your daggum arm out. You can learn how to do it and just use your wrist and let the rod do the work. <laughs> I learned that yeah. one the hard way for sure. <laughs> no doubt. So, I mean, I kind of first started going to the Bay Rock. Kind of a funny story. Me and my buddy were fishing. Oh, no one's down there and, and the wind's hitting the bank just right. And it's one of those coves that the wind hits that one cove right but it's not hitting really hardly any of the other places the right way um so we start fishing that cove and it, the wind is blowing in our face probably 30 40 miles an hour that that lake is brutal i mean it will eat you alive the wind and the waves and just everything in the rocks i mean you'll fall you'll you can fall off the shelf people die in that thing. um because the, the shelf you can fall off the shelf and it's like it goes from like five feet to like 23 feet in like a foot it's unbelievable um but so we're sitting there and, I, and we're trying to strip our streamers in because fish 
uh, rising on the surface and, and they're busting on top on bait and whatever. And, and you see the, oh, you always see the big ones surface out way away from your casting distance. And I mean, I, we're fighting the wind, fighting the wind. Just, I mean, like you said, we're not letting, you can't really let the rod do the work because you're trying to punch through that wind. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I got smacked in the face by my flies and my buddy, it was happening to him too. And I was just like, yeah, I'm sick of this, you know? So I went, I had the spay rod with me. I rigged up the spay rod and went and went to some rocks and just found a way I could kind of roll cast and kind of be out of the wind. And the wind calmed down a little bit and I caught a fish that day. And I kind of thought about it and just was like, you know, that's a really good way to be able to beat the wind um, when possibly there's no way other, other to fish. I mean, you'll see everybody be fishing and the wind is the best time to fish. And the only the hardcore guys will be out there because other people get discouraged and they just go sit in their truck because they're fighting. Um, it's closer in anyway. Um, when that wind hits the shore, just like any fishing, bass fishing, striper fishing, you name it, where that tide or, or it's not tide, where the water's hitting the bank, that's where the bait's going to be washed up to, and the bugs and um, whatever else. So I mean, it's it's been a really good trick to use. Yeah, I, I won't try it. It's just up here where I am, I'm fishing like Appalachian streams. So, you know, it's all, we got a bunch of rhododendron stuff. And like, really what I fish most of the time is a eight, six, four weight. Uh, just because I'm just roll casting small stuff like that. And I usually take that when I go fishing Wyoming, Montana and stuff. And then, you know, I'll bring a five or a six, those streamers or some heavier stuff. Yeah, so so that I, I really like fishing small stuff too. Um, if I could pick a big river or a small creek to be able to fish up, consistently fish in a small creek, I I, I wouldn't say I don't like to catch big fish because everybody likes to catch big fish, but something about wading up a small creek, especially wet wading, is just so much fun. Oh, it, you can't beat wet wading with like a three or four weight and catching like. 10 to 15 little fish and just going through. I, I love it. That's why it's so relaxing. Just doing it. Like you said, you know, everyone wants to catch a big one, but shit, man, it's fun catching those little fish on that. Especially if you're using like six, six X, you know, something like that. Oh, yeah. Real life. Time. It's, it's fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. I, I wet weight a lot in the summer and I really enjoy it. Just, just when I'm hanging out and doing whatever, I'll, I'll grab my, my spay rod or not my spay i grab my five weight and everybody's hanging out down by the river or whatever i'll just walk my way up the river and just just cast across and swing some dries or swing a few uh midges or corona midges or whatever they're biting on and i mean i've i've had some of my my favorite days fishing just just beautiful days and just wading my way up the the river of the creek um you know and uh, no, nothing crazy big ever um, but tons of fun, you know. What's your What's your biggest fish on a fly rod? Mm, I don't really consider pyramids to be a, the same. Like compare the two, just because pyramids, a, a, it's a freak of a lake. Uh, <laughs> I've probably caught a. I didn't, I never carry a scale with me because it's not super important, and that they don't do it by inches there because the fish are so big that you do it by weight. I've probably caught a five to, I don't know, probably a five to eight pounder somewhere in there. Like the 28 
around 28, 30 inch, somewhere around there? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I would probably say, yeah, 20, definitely over 28 for sure. Cause I've, I've caught a 25 inch. That's a big freaking fish. Mine, my biggest one I caught one of the smaller creeks I was fishing when I was out in Wyoming. I caught like a 20, a little over 20 inch cutthroat. 20 inch. Yeah. I caught one day, um, winter time, really cold snow on the ground on a Corona mid right when those fish start to come out of it's still water fishing too on another lake up in the Sierras. They're kind of, you know, circle around the edge trying to find bugs and more. They're kind of getting to that spot. Ice starts to come off the lake and they start getting active again. I caught around a 25 inch rainbow on my just a really pretty fish um super hard fighter um on a copper john and that's probably that's definitely my biggest trout on a fire rod ever yeah i had a nice i went and asked have you ever heard of cheeseman canyon in uh in colorado it's a really cool place to fish um there's a lot of traffic but there's it's a tail race and there's just so much freaking food in this little uh, gorge it's like a tail race gorge section that i was fishing and there's just okay. so much food, huge fish, huge fish. But you'd hook them in that gorge, and you couldn't run the rocks to run them downstream. So I'd help. Like, oh. Yeah, that's. I mean, right there, that's one of my favorite reasons to fly fish in general. There's just something about like you're, especially when you. Not that you don't care, but you're just relaxed and you're not really paying attention, and you're fishing, and all of a sudden big one takes your streamer or, or sucks your bobber down and lines going everywhere and you're in a mad dash and someone's trying to get the net that's my all-time favorite reason to fly fish just the chaos that uh, once when when you get that similar, similar to waterfowl hunting just because like all the all the gear and shit that you use and you know like you said sometimes yeah. uh, sometimes it'll be a real relaxing I'm a gear guy, so I get all that kind of shit for fly fishing and waterfowl. Yeah. I'm a huge huge gearhead when it comes to anything, anything, you name it, waterfowl, big game, fly fishing, bass fishing. I mean, I'm not a, not a, I, I don't, I'm, I'm happy to say that I don't get, I don't really buy into like the, like the, uh, the hype. I would say on, on a lot of things, I kind of feel it out and find what works for me. I, I, I am a big proponent. I'm, I'm a 19 year old college student. I don't have thousands of dollars, but I mean, I'd probably spend more on hunting and fishing gear than anything else for sure. Um, just be, I mean, I do, I am lucky enough to have the time and the resources to be able to fish and hunt a lot. So, um, I mean, when I was younger, was, a, was it a little excessive to have all sick gear when I was younger? And it was, it was, it was kind of before it was cool, though. Like, not everything yeah. was And it wasn't, it really wasn't the reason I was trying to, like, fit in with the crowd. It was just because I hunted so much when I was younger that, I mean, it, the stuff would just hold up. Um, but, like I said, when it comes to anything, I mean, spotting scopes to shotguns to whatever, I, I always try to put the most money into it as I can just so it lasts for and 
if I could suggest one tip to anybody getting into it would be don't just throw your money at the sport or anything in the outdoors, do a little bit of research. And I mean, especially, um, with shotguns or waders or any, like any of the pieces that you're going to use every day, don't be afraid to throw a little bit more money at it. If you're really passionate. I mean, it's one thing if you're, it's going to save you money along. It's always buy it, buy it once, buy it once. And like you said, do your research. Like, yeah, that's the biggest thing. I really like what you said about don't just buy into the hype because social media is pushing it. Like there are so many people out there who are just getting paid to push a product. Well, then there's so many gimmick brands now that are coming out. Um, yeah. it, it, it is for, you know, a young guy or, or even, you know, older guys getting into it. You know, it's kind of, it, it can kind of get uh, overwhelming. I mean, Go ahead. exactly. I'm, I'm not a proponent of, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but like dive industries, just in today's time with marketing for waterfowl, they have, they have the shirts, the hats, the decoys, they're coming out with everything they could think of because it sells and they have such a following. Um, for example, like a company like Dave Smith decoys, the reason why they have a following is because it's just good stuff. It's made in America. They have killer um, background and warranty behind their company, as well as you call them up and you're talking to a small group of people. I mean, same thing with RM calls like stump. You, you call, you call RM calls. It's stump. It's no yeah, you're going to get stumped. You know, and or same with rice. When you call, you call Bill Daniels, or you call Riceland, it's Bill Daniels answering the phone. Same thing. I, I mean, I could say about all the companies that I really surround myself with. I mean, Tim Grounds, you call, it's either Hunter Grounds is, I believe it's his grandma answer the phone or it's Hunter Grounds answering the phone or one of their close family friends or family members. I mean, those are the companies that, I mean, have standed the test of time. I'm not saying dive bomb won't and, um, we can get into the silhouette talk and that whole thing too. Um, but I mean, like you said, there's way too much hype in the hunting industry. I mean, back to what I talked to a lot of people about and people get worried about using this brand and this and whatever, and just talking about calls and like, and they just say, what well, should I get this call? It's like, well, what are you comfortable with? You know, I, I, what I use on my lanyard will not work for you most likely. And if it does, then you should try, you know, you should try that. But I think a lot of it, I mean, I've gone through more gear that through trial and error that I thought I'd really like and just didn't really fit the way I hunt. Um, and that's okay. I mean, like I said, the research will eliminate a lot of that, but, um, I think a huge part is just being realistic with what you're going to use, you know? Yeah. That's kind of what we started this podcast two years ago was to, Kind of eliminate. Um, I mean, you know, I grew up waterfowl hunting, and I was kind of lucky, like you, like you know, I was, was fourth generation waterfowl in California. And, you know, the other co-host Chris, um, he was there at the calling competition with me. Uh, was it last month or this month earlier? Um, yeah, it was just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, and um, so he, you know, I took him on a whim. He fell in love with it, and he ran with it. But you know, he's gone through. <laughs> he's gone through thousands of dollars in the last two years, you know, Chris's wife hates Joe. <laughs> yeah, She hates me, <laughs> um, but it, it is, you know, it's finding, finding what you, you know, 
what works for you and sticking with and staying consistent. Um, and it's funny yeah. you see you talked about the silos because I think you know we had um, we did a silo. We had real geese decoys on here uh, about a year ago. And, you know, they gave some product to use and all that. You know, it's great product. I love it. But like back when I was young, um, like I said, I feel like I'm dating myself, but silos and socks, that was like the thing. Like Texas rags, like that's what we used up there in the Sac Valley. And no one, no one really thought about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, full bodies came out. It was a game changer. And everyone kind of went away from the socks. And that, those were the socks and sills, which we used, you know, like my dad and them using the 70s, 80s, early 90s. You know, those went away. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like full circle. They're, you know, they come back. And now, you know, not saying they're a gimmick because I mean, I use sills and socks. And, you know, I use, I kind of use a little bit of everything. Um, down here, but everyone's doing crazy over them. Like, you know, like, you know, like we didn't use them 30 years ago. Oh yeah. So I've heard, I'm sure you've heard of Sean Stahl. Who, yeah. Sean Stahl's. Yeah. Sean Stahl. He, I've heard him say it's a, it's not a evolution. It's a revolution. with yeah. Everything. I mean, it's gone from layout lines, the panel lines to, um, silhouettes the full bodies and socks and i mean i mean i can tell you right now every single one of those products i use between layout blinds panel blinds socks silhouettes full bodies there is a time and a place for every single one of those i'm not saying that and when people say oh well that's kind of out of date no i don't think it's out of date i think it might be out of place for your situation um for example um, if you have to walk in somewhere and you, you can't carry full bodies or floaters or something, yeah, I, I'm all about the silhouettes. I love Big Al's decoy silhouettes, um, no, not only for the reason of packability, but they, I mean, if you put them out the way they're supposed to be put out and don't kind of follow what everybody thinks is this run big, run wide, um, you can really make them look like full bodies out there, um, as well as in some light conditions, full, or silhouettes are great. Some days, though, like on on a gray day or or a really tough day when the geese get smart. I mean, give me give me some Dave Smith full bodies. I mean, it, the, they just work, you know. And like I said, on a big wind day in California, I mean, the people that are killing the majority of the snows and the specks are hunting over socks just because that's what works. It's really really odd to see people say, "Oh, I'm going to run only socks this year. I'm going to." only run silos in my decoy trailer if i went in there right now you would see a mix of everything you would see yeah. a mix of silos full bodies you'd see i have an a-frame blind i can hunt out of i have layout blinds i can hunt out of everything is it you just got to play it by the situation you gotta it, it all comes down it can come down to sunlight it can come down to moisture it can come down to how, how you get in the field what is the hide like um, how smart are your birds? What time of year it is? It all, all those, all those things play into a big role. And I think I, I know these things and I've learned these things through hunting really pressured areas in California. And I've, I've been lucky and I'm not saying that I know everything and, and anything like that, but I've been lucky to learn by messing up way more times than I've been successful. Um, 
And I think that's another big thing that goes back to the hype is just, just forget about the hype and go hunt with what you got, figure it out. Yeah. You know? And and if you see an opportunity to pick up a piece of gear that will help you in the field, no doubt do it, you know? So for, you know, for, for the new, the new hunger hunters and the guys, you know, or just around your age, the college kids, if you had to recommend five, like your five go-to pieces of equipment for a new waterfowler, um, you know, maybe he's hunting with buddies. He's, he's learning. So he's not necessarily forcing up in it by himself, but, you know, he's tagging along, you know, you know, the, the young college, what's the five pieces of equipment that you really think a, a new younger waterfowler should, should, you know, really look into. Say five pieces. I kind of put that into categories. I kind of put that into like decoys. I put that decoys, guns, shells, or I kind of put those together. Um, yeah. I, I, those or waiters, clothes, and um, let's say just accessories like duck calls and stuff. Yeah. Let's say, let's say he's, they got a gun, they got a gun, they got a pair of waders, you know, they're, they're ready to go hunt, hunt with the group. Um, don't need a call. Cause they're not that good on it yet. Let's just say like, what, are, what should they bring, you know, to the blind and kind of start like, or maybe like some things they should get to help kind of contribute to their friends. Yeah. So, so when you say that, I mean, I'll just use as my example, when I take kids or, people that don't really know what to do or whatever, um, warm socks, warm socks, um, will keep you in the field in any, in any conditions. I'd rather be sweating in my socks on the walkout than not being able to feel my toes on the hunt. Um, yeah. and I made that, I really have came to really like, I hunted dry fields a lot this year and I had a pair of those extra tough, uh, boat, sh- like deck shoes, yeah. deck boots. love them to death but on cold days if you don't wear the right sock or you just wear them in general your feet are freezing even in california so um i'd say warm socks i'd say um i kind of just consider that base layers make sure your your core temperature is warm um two i'd i'd say a duck whistle a duck whistle is something when the birds aren't necessarily flying you can learn on quickly it's not as uh, difficult to learn on them, like a duck call. Um, three would definitely be a good jacket that's going to keep you dry. Um, I, out of all my buddies, the biggest thing that we run into when we're hunting is if it's bad weather, I'm soaking wet, you know, and, and no, and no one wants to see their buddy soaking wet. Um, and I'm not saying to go out and buy yourself a $500 Sitka jacket. There's plenty, you can go with a, all you can go with a green Grundens um, commercial fishing jacket and stay. Frog Tog um, makes it. Yeah, as I was gonna say, Frog Tog. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Exact. Same exact. Same exact concept. Um, so that puts me at three things, and really the two other things. Um, so they already have a gun. They already have shells. Um, bring a jerk cord. Jerk cord. If you can't run the call and you're not really running the show bring a jerk cord and make make a important on your hunt you know add be able to add the motion and um you there's places where you can over pull a jerk cord and 
can make too much motion, but it's pretty hard to do. Ducks like yeah. motion. Um, so that's a good one. Um, and then five, if you're a guest and your buddies bring you snacks and gas money will get you invited a thousand times more than <laughs> any other gear. Yes, it's it's pretty funny, but I will tell you this. My buddies who are willing to help with meals or willing to pay for gas or just bring snacks in general, you, you're it's not even it's not even a thing like you don't like your other buddies that don't do that. You your your mind automatically jumps to, oh, those guys help. They contribute. Yeah, they contribute. Yeah. That's yeah. the big one. Contribute, contribute, contribute. Contribute. Yeah. Exactly. And like I said, contributing more is just the attitude is more than anything. If yeah. someone how to put out decoys, for example, what I like to do, I'll say, okay, so, Hey, I'm going to, sh- we'll show you how I'll explain why we're putting the decoys out like this. But since you don't know, I'll put stakes, say if we're putting out a goose spread, I'll put stakes down and you follow me with the decoys. You put the decoys on the stakes and I'll explain why, and then I'll explain why after we do that. For duck hunting, you know, I'll explain to them, hey, if you want to go make and start pulling brush up for this blind, that's a great way to get someone involved because not everybody knows how to put out decoys. Not everybody knows how to brush a blind, but anybody can basically pick weeds. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Everybody can figure out a way to use a big pair of scissors or a big uh, brush cutter to be able to cut some brush for the blind. Um, and just really just be, just contribute, you know, and just that, that gets you more invites back than anything, you know? Yeah. I, I couldn't, I could not agree more with you, bud. Yeah. And I would say that. And also, um, it's always an ongoing joke with waterfowlers, but give your buddies a call, especially with the leases or, with the farms to hunt on or properties or whatever, give them a call in the off season and offer, Hey, if you need help on a work party or whatever, you know, that, that directly translates to hunts, you know I mean? Yeah. Uh, it goes it's that off season time that really, you know, that really makes those, you know, for us, 60 days for you, 115 days really makes the, um, makes the hunts good is the off season. Oh yeah. No, no doubt. So preparation, I learned that from the guy I guided for Ben this year. We started prep work in September or yeah, I think it was September and we, we worked our butts off. And, and when I'm saying like this area when, where I guide, it's a two, two and a half hour drive at the least from my house. Like, yeah, it's not, but, but he made it very clear in the beginning of the season. Like, Hey, if you want to be a guide, you have to do this work too. This is, this is part of being a guide. Everybody, Everybody wants to show up and just put decoys out and call themselves a guide. But that's what really, I think, made me the guide who I am is realizing there's a lot more that comes into it. There's uh, brushing blinds and and getting the decoys and putting them in bags and setting tools out in the blinds and uh, just doing all the the dirty work before the season started. And I I even fun when the season came around, but. I'm going to tell you this right now, instead of having to fuss with blinds during the season, we spent 95, 90 to 95% of our time while guiding, guiding. We did not have to mess with blinds. We did not 
go get decoys. It was very, very easy on us as guides all season long, just because we were so prepared. That's a, that's one of the big things is being prepared and getting your stuff lined up. I figured that out. So I guided full time for my first time this season and People think it's, oh, you, you hunt every day. You're living life. You're throwing out decoys. Yeah, but I'm leaving the house at 3.30, and a lot of times I'm not back at the lodge till 9.30 at night, loading my trailer, getting the decoys I need for the scout I saw, and then back doing it again. Like You, you really, you really got to love it to, to be a guide. It's not all just throwing out decoys. There's a lot more. Like you spend way more time brushing blinds. Oh, we got to go get fuel. Oh, we got to do this. Oh, we got to go cut brush. I mean, it's way more than just hunting. Way more than just yeah. hunting. And, and right there, that's, there's people that don't do that, which is sad for people's money's sake. It's, but it's so sad. Ma- you know, what, what makes you a guide is what you just said. Um, for example, I had guys, we, we offered these clients to cancel and they said, no, we, we'd still like to go. And, and I, I mean, I'm 19 years old. So the looks I get when I pull up to a field and saying, I'm your guide, the looks I get are kind of like, what? Like you're our guide. And I, luckily at the end of every hunt, I've not, not had a single guy being like, yeah, you weren't the great, you weren't that great. You know, I, I've had very good results, but what I'm saying is I, I sacrificed a lot of time that one, that day that I was just talking about, they didn't cancel. Um, so I drove up in the morning and I had schoolwork or whatever to do. And I had to get back home. I drove two and a half hours up there, three 30 in the morning, guided till 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And then I think I, I just got back in my truck after I, I, uh, and I just drove straight back home, you know, and, and being a guide, um, a lot of guys, the local guys up there, I think they're, they're pretty lucky just because they're, they don't, they get out of bed and they drive 35 minutes and they're out their field and they drive right back home and everything's there for them. Me. Um, I mean, I was grinding hard early in the season. I would stay up there for a couple of days and do school up there and whatever it took really to be a guide. And I had really good results, but it wasn't because I'm gifted. I was just in better pits or I was lucky or anything. It was because I would be like, I would be getting back to the camp at late at night and getting decoys ready. And if the snows moved in, I'd be, you know, I need to put snow goose decoys out to anything from the birds aren't liking the blind, more brush is needed. And I mean, it went from thing to thing. I had Gus one day, um, Gus, who you're going to have on the podcast. I, I took him out hunting one day and I was having quad issues. And then, uh, we just walked out that day and then the next day I took him out again and I had to borrow a quad to use. Um, but I already, already dropped it off. Gus rode with me, thank God, and gave me some company. We drove all the way across the valley to go pick up my quad and back just so I could guide, um, a couple of days later. So, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's one thing after being a guide, it's not easy. And, and I'm lucky that I get to share some, some good hunts when I don't have clients with some of my close buddies and especially around the holidays, the guides I work for are real generous and they get to, they, they don't forget the reasons why I work for the guys I do. They don't forget the reasons they're doing it. You know, like you said, you really have to love it, but it's a, it's a job. It's not, it's not go shoot geese and have fun every day. It's, it's a grind for sure. 
Oh, it, it'll have you cussing it for sure. It'll have you cussing it when you're, when you sit out there and, you know, especially when you, like you said, we, we do the same thing. I'm, I'm on the phone with you telling you what it's looking like. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you and upfront with you. Hey, you know, I have birds. It's hit or miss, you know, we're shooting six a day, 15 the next, maybe one or two, you know, it's, it's not consistent. And then they say, yeah, I, I want to come up. And then you like, when it's like that, you, you go from putting in work to going the extra mile, you know, you're in the truck, lately. you're just trying to figure out certain things just to get these people on birds. And even, even when you say like, Hey, it's a little slow, you know, they kind of look at you like, well, you know what, what the heck, man. But it's like, look, a guy can only control certain things. He can't control yeah. Weather. There's still migratory birds. He can he can control what time he gets there, how much work he does. Like if he's out in the decoys touching stuff, like that's the only thing you can control. And it's it's tough because like it's great when you get a group of clients who are hunters who understand that. But then you yeah. get a lot of times doing it, you get guys who don't, you know, who are kind of getting into it and they see stuff on YouTube and get all these YouTube expectations, which we all know aren't real. And they come out there and they're like, what the heck? (laughs) Yeah. So right there, what you said is a perfect, I was very lucky on my, all my guided goose hunts. I got skunked one day, the whole year, the whole, the whole year I got skunked one day and we had a one shot opportunity that was somewhat close, but not like, obviously not out of range, but just not perfect weird angle um and the geese just they just they were there but they just didn't want to work they were trucking right over us going to another field and luckily the guys i'd been hunting that i was hunting with that day they they'd been hunting all over the country and they just said hey you know that's that's how it is you can't there's not you can't change some stuff you know and and i mean yeah it sucked but they at least that day i was with guys that really understood and then it goes to show also I've had days where it's, it's wide open. Can't keep them off you. And the guys are looking at you like, is this a good hunt? You know, and it's like, yeah. you know, this is a great hunt, you know? And, but luckily I, I, I'm very lucky with the guide service I do. And we have a lot of returning customers that are really good guys. Um, so, so it really pays off to, work for someone that has a good reputation um because it's it just is easier on you as a guide to have good clients um i know one of my good buddies he was like hey i i got off I, i'm trying to go work for this guy and i told him i was like i'm not trying to shut you down and say you shouldn't do it but you don't want to be associated with some guys don't have the best reputation and don't want their reputation even if you're a good dude um, to, to reflect on who you are, you know, you need to think of those things in this. Because everybody, I mean, guiding waterfowl and guiding big game, whatever, it's all fun and games, but it's still at the end of the day, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, um, yeah, we're at an hour 30, guys. Yeah, pretty damn good one. Pretty damn good one, Joe. You got anything else for we? No. Oh. I told hey, hey, Bronson, thank you uh, for being on the on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was a good talk. We covered a lot of topics. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, no problem. Hey, if you ever 
if you want that Louisiana hunt, man, you're more than welcome to come down. Yeah, if you if you want to oh, yeah. if you want to take eight less specs, you can come see me in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I qualify for our, for Stuttgart again this year, I'll be around Arkansas. And one of these years, I, I got a bunch of people that I've got invites for Arkan or for Arkansas and Louisiana. I, I'd eventually like to get to all those and try to try to hunt as many different places as I can, just because that's one of my favorite parts about waterfowl is just the diversity and different styles of everybody um, and the way they hunt them. Yeah. It's all good stuff. I've got to love it. That's why we do it, man. Connecting people across the flyways to hear talk about one thing. It's all damn different. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, no doubt about that. All right, man. Well, we really appreciate it. And, uh, Thanks for coming on. If we don't talk to you uh, before next hunting season, get after them. Yeah. Yeah. You guys too. Good luck. Good luck next season. And hopefully Joe, if you're, you're calling him more contests, good luck to you too. Hey, I appreciate it, bud. But hey, yeah. for, for our viewers, uh, we want to give a, a, a good shout out uh, um, to some of our sponsors. We want to thank uh, the real, uh, the real decoy for sponsoring this show. We like to also thank um, Dial and Honor. If you're looking to get any other real decoy products, look look them up and use promo code FWC22 and receive 15% on your next purchase. Like always, let Dial not fail. Mm-hmm.